When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, y'all. You're listening to Eco Chic, episode 88. My name is Laura Diaz. If you're new around here, it's really nice to meet you. Happy New Year. I hope you're having a super fabulous 2020 thus far whenever you're listening to this episode. I'm pumped because today's episode is a call-in episode, my favorite type of episode. The Chic Chats call-in episodes are my favorite way to connect with listeners and talk about our shared experiences when it comes to sustainability and environmentalism. And if you're not familiar with this episode type, I will go ahead and give a little background. The call-in episodes are typically surrounding one certain topic. So previous topics have included dating or sustainability abroad in different countries. Most recently, we had one on community organizations around sustainable focuses. And these episodes are so much fun for me to put together because I invite listeners on to give a little snippet of their perspective and their experiences on these particular issues and these particular topics. They're not always issues, but it's always fun to be able to invite people on to share their stories and to share their thoughts on these topics because I always like to say that podcasts are inherently a very intimate media. You are listening to someone in your ear. You're getting to know their mannerisms and their sayings. And while that's a really fun, interesting aspect to podcasts as a form of media, I also really have always wanted this podcast to be a community and really want to be able to showcase you and your ideas and what you want and what you're interested in learning more about. So this is a great way for us to connect with one another and realize that there are other people also listening to this. It's not always just like me talking to myself in a microphone, but it's a really fun episode style. So they take me a little bit longer, but I always like to advertise the topic that I'm putting together on Instagram. So that's typically how I find the guests that speak on this episode. So I will go ahead and have the Instagram for the podcast linked below. It's just instagram.com at podcast. Another fun announcement that I haven't talked about yet on the show is that we are now putting out a newsletter once a week. So it's interesting if you're familiar now with Totally Eco Chic, our eco-conscious lifestyle brand. It is a newsletter we're putting out that is a little bit of the shop. It's a little bit of the podcast, a little bit climate news, and then always just something funny at the end. So if you're interested in signing up for our newsletter to just get your weekly dose of relatable environmentalism, you can go to totallyecochic.com and there's a little pop-up that just says sign up for our newsletter 
newsletter and that's where you can get it. It's not like constantly just selling you things. It's really environmental news. It's stuff about the podcast, stuff about what's going on, sales, stuff like that. So the newsletter is going to be a really fun way for us to continue to communicate. And that's where I will also be sharing not only on Instagram, but I'll also be sharing there the next topic for our call-in episodes. And I invite you to keep an eye out. And if you're interested in getting involved or showcasing your stories on one of the future Chic Shots episodes, you can go ahead and send me an email, laura at lauraediaz.com. Or again, you can contact me through Instagram at Podcast, And my personal page is always listed down below. Before we get into today's episode, I also want to give a little bit of a reminder. If you're not following us yet on social media, we have a giveaway going on to celebrate 2020 and help you reach your sustainability goals. We are giving away a set of silicone storage bags. So you can go ahead and enter on Instagram at EcoChic Podcast and also at Totally Eco Chic. And the silicone storage bags are also 20% off right now for the start of the new year. Whenever you're listening to this episode, go ahead and log on totallyecochic.com. And I think the silicone storage bags are such a fun way to really level up your plastic-free lifestyle because I feel like once you have your reusable coffee cup and reusable water bottle, the next step for those like less intuitive plastic-free swaps are things like Ziploc baggies. So hopefully this gets you in the right direction moving towards a lower waste 2020. And with all of that housekeeping out of the way, let's finally get into today's episode. Today's Chic Chats episode is focusing on careers, jobs in the environmental sphere. And I'm really pumped about today's episode because I feel like it is such a good collection of different types of listeners and different types of stories and different careers that you can really start thinking more about. So I also want to preface this with saying that this is not necessarily only an episode for people that are like fresh looking for their first job or picking a college major or something like that. It's really an episode that I feel relates to everyone in whatever stage of their career you are in. So we are going to be hearing from five women today. First, we're hearing from Sophia, a researcher with NASA. We're listening to Arielle. She is a corporate sustainability manager. We're listening to Hannah and Lacey, our first double call in, and they run a socially conscious PR firm. We are speaking with Gabby. She is a nonprofit intern focusing on climate literacy. And last but not least, we are speaking with Allison, who is a consultant working on a utility company project. So a lot of different types of careers, a really wide variety of fields, and also a lot of different levels of an organization. Again, we're speaking with someone who's an intern, but also someone who's a manager. And also Hannah and Lacey run their own firm. So there is a lot of different stories and different perspectives to really hear about when you're talking about environmentalism. And something that I'm really passionate about driving home in this particular episode is that environmentalism and careers in climate can really look like a lot of different things. There's no one way to care about climate or dedicate your career to environmental responsibility. You can really do it in a lot of different fields, a lot of different departments, through a lot of different educational sectors, and not everyone has a very linear path to getting to where they are today. So I think it gives a lot of really interesting perspective and hopefully it gives you some food for thought. I feel like for this to be the first episode of 2020, it really kicks off our year just feeling ready to go and ready to like tackle all of our goals. So that's what I got out of this episode, really, that there is a space for everyone in the climate conversation. There is a way that you can get involved with environmental work in whatever field you are already in, in whatever your passions already are. So it's really 
everyone's job to care at least a little bit about environmental responsibility and environmental impact. I want to remind everyone also, if you're new to these particular episodes, that because they are call-in episodes with so many different people and so many different locations and situations, the audio is not always uniform throughout the entire episode, and you might hear some, like, differences in the quality that you're getting throughout the conversations. I think they all sound really, really good. The one thing that I do want to say before we get into it is that while I was speaking with Gabby, our fourth guest on this episode, her closing statement got a little bit cut out, and I was really upset about that listening back because I thought it was such a powerful way for her to close off the conversation, so I'm just going to go ahead and let you guys know Her last line was just that definitely there are good people working on this every day. She was just talking about environmentalism and the idea that working in the environmental fields can be a very positive experience. So that's a theme that I want you to really take to heart. I hope you love these conversations and you really get a lot out of this episode because, again, it was one of my favorite ones to put together. Let's get right into it. Sophia, tell me first your age and where you're calling in from. Hi, yeah, I'm 23 and I'm currently calling in from Chico, California. Awesome. Okay, I'm really excited to talk with you a little bit about your job and your career. Tell us what it is that you do. Yeah, I'm a geospatial environmental researcher. um, And most recently, I was working as the assistant center lead at NASA Develop. So this is a dual capacity building program under the Applied Sciences Department of NASA. I know that's a lot of technical jargon. So essentially what we do And kind of our mission of the whole program is we're working with different people and stakeholders, such as, you know, the National Park Service, the Nature Conservancy, um, and also private ranchers. And our goal is to try and provide them tools to incorporate GIS, which stands for Geographic Information Systems, and it's a mapping software, along with satellite data from satellites from NASA and from the European Space Agency. And what we're trying to do is help incorporate them with this data so they can help make better informed decisions on land management practices and maybe policies that they're working on for the land. Um, And I think a good way kind of to summarize what I do is to provide an example. What my first project was, was actually working with the Colorado State Forest Service and private ranchers. And these private ranchers, you know, they're covering areas of hundreds of acres and there's a big outbreak of budworms. So it's kind of similar to beetles, if you've heard of beetle kill in forests, and they were really worried about how these beetles were impacting their land that they're managing. So instead of sending people out in the field to kind of take an inventory of where there's high impacts of these beetles, we are able to use NASA satellites looking down on their ranches and coding and algorithms and kind of more the technical side of things and provide them an output map saying, okay, here's your ranch. Here's areas that have been high impacts from this beetle or budworm or whatever they're worried about. And this is where you should be doing your most intensive land management. So I think the the coolest part about the job that I do is it's really applied science and that we're doing all this research stuff, but we're able to really apply it to these people that are making land management decisions on the ground. I think that's such a good way to describe what you do because that gave me a really clear picture of your day-to-day. It is like technical on the ground at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I would love to talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. So tell me a little bit about like what you had to learn to best prepare yourself for this more technical scientist role. 
Right. So I kind of came at it from more of the environmental science perspective. Um, I graduated from UC Berkeley a year ago, and I was doing environmental science as my bachelor's degree. And I was introduced to this world of GIS, which, as I mentioned before, is this mapping software where you can layer and analyze data spatially over a general area. And I kind of got introduced to it as a research assistant at Berkeley. And from there, I worked on a thesis and kind of got more into the, you know, coding side and data side of things. And then, uh, yeah, I applied for this position, not really knowing exactly what remote sensing was. Again, that's the whole satellite aspect of things. I was more used to the mapping side of things. But yeah, so I, I applied and I got in. And the big part of our program is they're trying to build people's capacity to use these remote sensing software. So a lot of the background is mainly in coding, uh, Google Earth Engine, which is an open source cloud platform to do this sort of analysis and this mapping software. But a lot of it I actually learned on the job, which is really great because I think a lot of people are kind of worried, especially as women in science of, I need to know everything before going into a job. But I didn't know everything. And once I got onto the job, they actually taught me a lot of the things I needed to know. I think that's a really good point to make the idea that you can learn a lot on the job because when you're looking at a job description, it is so easy to feel like you are not qualified and you're not going to apply because you're just like, oh, I don't know this particular thing. I think that if you can really get into a space where you're willing to learn, I think that's such an interesting way to better yourself as a scientist or really in any career field, just setting yourself up to like have a mentor or have someone who can really support you in your career development. Right. And I think especially I really benefited from the program I was with because it was such a supportive atmosphere and I was working, you know, but with both men and women, but everybody was kind of on the same page of everyone was coming in with different expertise. I was working with people who did their undergrad in biology. I was working with people who did their undergrad in data science. But when we all came together, it was really great because we were able to produce these projects and these outputs um, that were really effective to change immediate policies that were taking place. I think that's really exciting that you can so quickly see your work impacting people. I feel like that's such a rewarding thing in any career field, just saying that you're working towards something that's being immediately implemented. So I would love to hear maybe if there's another project that you'd like to share or anything else that's really a good summary of like what your time at NASA really looked like. Yeah, so I worked on a couple different projects and they're all 10 weeks. So it's pretty fast paced. You, you know, you get in there you kind of dive right into the data and you're, you're starting to work on creating these outputs. So I think another good example of something I was working on was with the Nature Conservancy. And another program I was working on was with private ranchers in Hawaii. And for both of these projects, we were looking on invasive species, which, you know, that's such a huge problem all over the United States, really all over the world. And so what we were able to do is we were able to incorporate the satellite data to look at the spread of invasive species and almost predict into the future, how is climate going to change the certain scenarios and certain ecology of area? And how is that going to affect the spread of invasive species? So these people can go out and mitigate these effects early to kind of prevent that spread from happening as rapidly in the future. So that was just another really on the ground, immediate action that we we're able to provide these people with to take action on these important problems. Awesome. Awesome. And closing off, do you have any final thoughts if there's someone listening who has an interest in going into a similar field, someone who's interested in getting more involved with environmental science, climate science, GIS mapping, any final thoughts on how someone can really 
help themselves better prepare for a similar field? Yeah. So I think there's a ton of resources out there, just like anything. And I was pretty much self-taught in my GIS background and remote sensing background. But one thing I would say is, you know, YouTube is always your best friend when you're learning big new concepts. And I did a lot of, you know, YouTube videos on GIS. And then the other thing I would highly recommend is look up Google Earth Engine. So this is an open source cloud-based platforming to do satellite and remote sensing data. It's really user-friendly. You don't need to know how to code a lot. You don't have to download any software, but it's a really good introduction to what these data sets look like, the different things you can do with them, and just kind of build, build from there. So yeah, those two, I think, are definitely what I would recommend. Awesome. And would you like to share before we started recording, you mentioned about science communication. And I think that that's a really great point to kind of leave people with if you'd like to share your thoughts on further investment in environmental issues beyond just being a technical scientist. I mean, not just, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Of course, of course. Technical scientist. Yeah. So I think a big thing um, with science communication is right now, I think there's a big disconnect between scientists and, you know, people that are doing all these hard sciences and the general public. So I think one of the great things about my program is we're really trying to bridge that gap in that, you know, scientists can work in the lab all day, you know, they can produce all these papers, but really what makes it worthwhile is when we're able to take these scientists and take these researchers and have them do work that's gonna be immediately applied to various problems in our world. And I think it's just important to kind of bridge that gap on the public understanding in that a lot of people out there feel like they aren't able to jump into the scientific world. But I think as scientists, what we need to do is to work on is to be able to present our research in a way that's really good for a lot of different people to understand. And then, you know, we can get these ideas more effectively out there and just create a more well-informed population. Ariel, before we get started, tell me your age and where you are calling in from. Sure. I'm 28 and I'm from New York. Great. So I'm really excited to hear a little bit today about your career. Tell us what it is that you do. Sure. I am the Corporate Sustainability Manager for Macmillan Publishers based in New York City. And my primary role is managing and accounting our carbon emissions across our global brand. But I also do employee engagement work, waste reduction, um, and other things that, that arise. Great. That's a really nice little overview of corporate sustainability. I would love to hear a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like on a regular day. Like when you say that you do all of these different things, I'm sure it's not like every single day you're accomplishing all these goals. So I want to kind of know like what the landscape looks like in corporate sustainability. Absolutely. So I would definitely argue that every corporation is different and every role is different. And my role is very time dependent or seasonal dependent rather. So in the winter spring time, we're collecting data from the previous year. So we're collecting utility bills and shipping data and learning more about how our company did. And then in the summertime, we're analyzing that data and turning all of those utility bills into carbon emissions. And then in the fall, we're generally figuring out our strategy for the following year. Um, Right now we're working on looking at carbon goals from 2020 forwards or from 2019 forwards, potentially using what's called science-based target initiative. And then of course, sprinkled in there are the random emails I get from employees. So I was asked to look into a reusable packaging shipping material and there's only a few of them out on the market. 
And we have a pilot right now with Lime Loop in one of our departments. And I've been asked to help people clarify what our sustainable paper policy is and what that looks like. And I've also been asked to research sustainable caterers because we want to minimize our impact when we're doing in-office breakfasts or lunch or things. Awesome. I'm really glad that you were able to explain that because I feel like when you say sustainability manager for any large corporation, it's interesting to think about how every single department has such different needs, like between catering and packaging and things like that. So I'm glad you were able to give that little overview. And switching gears a little bit, I would love to know how you got to where you are today. Sure. I fell in love with sustainability when I was 16. An Inconvenient Truth had just come out and everything just clicked for me. I always knew that I wanted to work in an impact-oriented field, never quite had a favorite subject, just kind of was good at most things and just very interdisciplinary. And sustainability for me is a very systematic and holistic way of thinking. So it really connects people from all over the world, all different departments of a company, um, working towards a common goal. And in college, I fell in love with the education side of things. So I was a student sustainability coordinator through the EcoRep program. And I realized that I wanted to work, you know, behind the scenes for an institution in some type of managing role. And I later transitioned to Aramark as their environmental manager, where I did environmental compliance and sustainability. And I realized that environmental compliance was not for me. That's dealing with like EPA regulations and the state versions of those. But I really always loved the sustainability side of things, which is more like the climate change or the waste mitigation aspects. And I I went to grad school at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And there I really honed my skills in corporate sustainability at large. I participated in several consulting projects and internships and knew that this was definitely the path for me, at least this time in my life. And after graduate school, I worked for Dan and Yogurt, and now I work uh, for Macmillan Publishers, and I've been there for about two years. My role is different than if it were at a public corporation. Um, We would have different stakeholders and different risks, but it's a little bit smaller and more contained because it's a private corporation. So that is interesting, and like, In my next role, whenever that may be, I'm looking to do more circular economy-based work and or sustainability for another corporation to be determined in time. So it's, I've had a fairly, um, a linear path. It hasn't really strayed from it, but that being said, doesn't mean that every pathway has to look like mine to kind of get where I am today. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned those different experiences you had because while your path was relatively linear, you can think about sustainability in so many different ways. And I was actually having this conversation with someone recently, like when you have a degree in environmental science, that can mean 10,000 different things. And like you mentioned, you had an experience where you realized you didn't enjoy environmental compliance and that's fine. You're still in your field, but you're learning that that particular niche is not for you. And I think that those experiences are also really, really valuable in figuring out what you ultimately want to do. Absolutely. And tell me a little bit about what you typically tell people when they're interested in getting more into corporate sustainability. How would you kind of advise someone if they are looking to get into a similar path? 
Right. This is a question I get asked all the time, and it's the hardest one to answer, of course. Because I had a very direct path, people often assume that that's the only way in, but I, I disagree. I do think that having work experience that's not necessarily sustainability related, but that is general business is really important. And so what I advise a lot of people to do is that if they're not getting that, you know, sustainability titled role, then they should, you know, if they have other skills like communication skills or financial skills, then they should look into working for companies that have really strong sustainability commitments and do their regular business role. It's a much easier at times to laterally transition or to add sustainability into your existing role so you're like a liaison with that team. And so you're still making a difference and still making an impact you know, while trying to work towards your ultimate goal. But I do think that having skills in everything is important because it's such an interdisciplinary world and it's such an inter interdisciplinary job itself. So you have to be a really strong communicator. You have to know how to analyze large chunks of data. You have to know how to ask good questions and see when data looks wrong and weird and you have to you have to be a really good project manager and most sustainability teams are always working on various projects at the same time and they're all in different stages of their projects themselves so you have to really make sure that you're putting your time where you know where it matters I think that you gave a really good tip in the idea that you can move laterally within a corporation once you're already in a role and add sustainability kind of to your repertoire. And I think that the idea of adding sustainability where it matters is also really important because a lot of the time there is a misconception, not necessarily by people interested in listening to this podcast, but at, at large, there's sometimes a misconception that sustainability is the responsibility of that department only. And exactly. When you're in a corporation or a university or a city government or anything, everyone really does have a responsibility to think about the environment and what they do. Like nothing operates in a vacuum, I always say, and there's no action that you can take that isn't somehow impacting the larger goals of environmental responsibility. Right, because sustainability coordinators are generally leading projects, but they're not usually the ones making those changes. Those people in your supply chain and your finance teams and your logistics teams are the ones who are actually making those decisions to lessen the company's impact. So it's not usually you who necessarily makes that change. You're just the one guiding the other teams to do it and you have the business case for it. So it's, it's really important to remember that, like you said, you cannot be in a vacuum and you're not almighty. Like it really takes a whole team of people to, to make change happen. I really like that concept. My final question for you would be like, what are some of the misconceptions that you see in sustainability when it comes to a larger corporate environment that people may be intimidated by if they're getting into it or people are just not as familiar with if they are just learning about corporate sustainability? Sure. So one of the most common questions I get asked is, is X company sustainable? And it's a really challenging question to answer because it depends on how you define sustainability. It depends on how you define the industry. And the way that I like to look at it is I like to look at companies' commitments and how transparent they are. So in true corporate sustainability sense, you want the company to reduce its environmental impact, usually through carbon emissions, while also gaining profitability and earning more market share, right? Because you need both to work in order for that to happen. 
it's always interesting because every company has some type of sustainability program right now. Sometimes it's more obvious and in your face, like there's an eco label on the product you're buying. Sometimes it takes a lot more digging and it's actually a really challenging landscape to decipher. And even I struggle with it. And it's always important to see how the industry is moving together or not. So if you're looking at the largest company in the industry, they oftentimes have the most prominent sustainability claims, but not always. So like Patagonia, everyone loves. They're considered the most sustainable in the business and their market share is actually growing tremendously because of this environmental impact minimization strategy that they've developed. And at the same time, right, there's other people on the other side saying like, why is consumerism, how is that considered sustainable? Well, is it? You know, it's a very hard question to answer. It could be, it could not be. And so companies like that are working with back-end companies called like Yurdle, for example, and they're reselling Patagonia products, repurposing them. So like that to me is a really interesting business model because they have two forms of income and they're basically leveraging both to make sure that they will be successful no matter what. Whereas most companies, obviously Patagonia is the, the prime example that everyone loves to use in corporate sustainability, but they are a private corporation. Again, when you're a private company, you don't, have to, you don't have as many stakeholders. You don't have shareholders that you need to ensure are pleased at the end of the year when those dividends go out. So it's a, it's a really challenging question that I urge people to, to do research and to really dive in into the claims that companies are making. Just because a company is producing a 100-page sustainability report doesn't necessarily mean that what's in there is amazing and mind-blowing. There's always room for improvement. And it's always interesting to have those discussions because it, it, it depends. And that's every sustainability person's favorite answer. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for getting into that. Thank you so much for getting into that because I think that that concept of, you know, a hundred page sustainability report, everyone assumes that they've done such a great job because it's such a large document. And unless you take the time to really page through it and use those critical thinking skills to think, is this actually worthwhile? Is this even helpful in the long run? I think that's such an important skill for anyone. I think about it a lot also in terms of like city sustainability plans, not that I know you're not involved with city government, but I think about it in the same way that a lot of cities want to come out with sustainability plans now. And a lot of the things they put into those plans are things that we've already known for a long time. And maybe the city's already doing it. It's not really accomplishing anything new. Exactly. And a lot of times in those reports, there's a lot of regurgitation because uh, you have something that works for you and you want to make sure it stays there and stays in the front of mind. So although I love this industry and I love this niche, it's very challenging to, to figure out, you know, what makes something better than something else. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun conundrum to work with every day. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Do you have any other final thoughts that you want to leave with the audience? I think that it's really important for consumers to put pressure on their favorite brands. Companies are starting to listen more and more. Like Unilever has come out with more natural-based products over the years, and that's because of consumers shifting towards that marketplace. So I think that it's, it's really important for consumers to actively voice their concerns because the more companies hear about these trends, the more they're likely to respond. Same thing goes with putting your money where your mouth is or whatever the phrase is, really making sure that you're supporting companies that you strongly believe in if that's available to you.
Hannah and Lacey, before we get started, please let me know your ages and where you're calling in from. I am 24 and calling in from San Diego. I am also 24 and calling in from San Diego. Great. So tell me a little bit about Lumaterra. What is it that you do? So Lumaterra Media is a socially conscious public relations firm. We focus on environmental issues, you know, like socially injustice issues and the companies and brands that are working their way to better the planet in some way, shape or form through their mission. And we help to highlight those companies within the media and the public sphere just to make sure that we're putting the best brands possible out there and highlighting those companies to ensure that when people are consuming and making, you know, purchasing decisions, they're making the right ones by supporting companies that are doing good for the world. And a lot of what we're doing is almost twofold. On top of representing the companies that are paving the way towards a more sustainable business world, we also want to be advocates for consumers because we ourselves are also consumers. So a lot of what we do at Lumaterra is educating the consumers on making responsible purchasing decisions that will go towards a positive impact on our economy and our planet overall. So we do a lot of conscious consumerism education with Lumaterra, so teaching people about how to consume more responsibly, whether that's purchasing from a company that is more environmentally friendly or not purchasing from a company who represents a mission statement that you don't align with, or whether it's researching a company that you regularly purchase from and seeing whether or not they do align with your morals. There's just a lot of different steps in consuming a product that a lot of consumers don't know about. There's actually a quote that Lacey and I really love by Ann Lapp. Ann Lapp, she's a great environmentalist. And the quote goes something along the lines of every dollar you spend, every purchase you make is a vote towards the world that you want to see. And again, that is a two-folded kind of quote. So I'm just buying this plastic water bottle one time. I just like really, I'm thirsty. I just really need this water. But like that $1 that you spent towards that plastic water bottle is creating the demand for more. And so to really plan ahead and make sure that you're not going to be putting your vote, your dollar towards a product like that is to plan ahead and to bring that reusable water bottle, have it ready with you, um, be prepared. And so that way you're not using your vote for something that you don't want to support as well as the back end of it, bringing your own water bottle is going to cut down the demand for the plastic water bottles. And then that will hurt the company and the company will try and combat that by having more responsibly sourced products. Plastic water bottles are obviously the worst thing ever. So Hopefully they they figure out how to limit those. But yeah, so basically we're really just trying to make sure that the consumers are also educated on different practices and kind of just different industry news that's going on, you know, which companies are making those switches and are being sourced ethically and, and bringing that information to the public as well. Because the way advertising works, you're just going to be bombarded with companies that have the most money because all of their ads are going to pop up. But PR and what we do is all word of mouth, genuine and transparent. And so that's kind of really brings the heavier weight behind a feature from a third party versus an ad on your Instagram feed. I think that's a really great rundown of what you do and what it means to really have a socially conscious mission behind the media that you are encouraging people to look into. So switching to more of your day-to-day, I would love to hear like what it is like to run and work your own boutique PR firm. 
So I think every day as a PR firm is a little bit different. We try as hard as we can to structure our days to be as routine as possible. But in the industry of PR, anything can change within the minute. So our typical day starts off answering our emails or inboxes, pitching to journalists about our clients and what they're doing in order to make a positive impact on the planet. And a lot of it also is a lot of networking. I think that's a lot of the backend stuff that a lot of people don't know about is that Lacey and I are on our phones a lot of the time in this job, but a lot of it is making connections with the humans who are also paving the way towards a more sustainable world. So a lot of what we do is networking on social media, on LinkedIn, and just meeting the comp- meeting the people behind these brands who are running these companies because we really want to bring back that human aspect to business again and bringing back that face-to-face meeting with people, whether it's through social media or in person. Yes, agreed. And I definitely think too that a big thing in like our day-to-day lives is that because we are running this ourselves, we are able to get very creative in what we are doing per se, like on a day-to-day basis. So for example, a few months ago, we came up with the idea to host a sip and swap, which is a clothing swap dedicated to the fashion revolution and educating the community about the sustainable fashion movement and basically exposing the facts behind fast fashion. So we put together a really cool clothing swap activity for the community where if you brought in items, you got like a currency to use for the number of items that you brought. And then that's how many items you could leave with. We had a live podcast there and we had um, a lot of local vendors of good companies that we support. So say like a local sustainable boutique and those kind of things. So during the last few months, a lot of our work has been focused on, you know, hosting an event. But prior to that, a lot of our time was focused on, you know, strictly just pitching and building our media database. So I think that is a big part of it being just us too, is that we're able to see the parts where our business could be improved in the areas that we need to focus on more and then completely switch our game plan and make sure that we're doing that within that moment versus, you know, later down the line when we see that we should have done something sooner. Um, we're able to jump into action a lot faster. And I think that's why our day-to-day changes, but it also why it's so fun because it's exciting. We're always doing something different. We're getting an email from this editor of a dream magazine that we wanted to be in and, you know, things like that, that really just keep us propelling forward and keep us on this mission. Awesome. I appreciate you guys breaking that down because I think that's a really great way to think about your day-to-day in such a positive light that you have this opportunity to really make things happen right when you want them to. And before we started recording, you told me a little bit about your backgrounds and corporate PR roles, essentially, thinking about how now your values and your work really align. I think that's a really respectable, admirable thing for people to be striving for. Yeah. And like a big thing and a big reason why I wanted to leave what we say is the agency life is because I was getting assigned clients that kind of like we mentioned, didn't align with myself personally. I've been vegan for almost three years and I had a rawhide shoe company as one of my clients. And that was not my forte. It was very, very hard for me to like, you know, make this money, like get, do what I'm supposed to be doing and promote a company that I completely stand nothing for, completely against, absolutely do not like, and I had to work with them. And so that's kind of really when I had my final like breaking point. And then Hannah and I had our conversation. It was around when we had a Friendsgiving too with some of our friends talking about all of us being in these, you know, these new jobs, these big kid jobs, like we would say. 
And we realized that we could be the big kids and we could start our own company and not have to compromise our morals or our values just based on what what job or the industry that we wanted to go into. Yeah, I think I actually remember one of your episodes, the Dating Sustainably episode, I remember you speaking specifically about aligning your morals with the people you surround yourself with, whether that's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your friends. And I think that we, we really connected that with our careers as well. So that sense of work-life alignment versus work-life balance. I really appreciate that because I love that quote or that theory, I guess it might be, that you are the average of the five people you spend your time with. I think that's what it is. And I think that that is a really good way to think about your business as well, because even the media that you're consuming, those are influencing who you are as a person and influencing your buying decisions and things like that. And beyond just your friends and your boyfriend, what you are looking at as a consumer is also really, really impactful in your ultimate like decision-making. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that was the biggest part of it is that we're able to we're able to surround our entire life with this conscious community that we don't have to think twice about this aspect of our lives because we already aligned ourselves to be around that sense of moral compass. Awesome. And I would love to close out on a positive note on the concepts of where you see really socially conscious brands and really socially conscious mission statements of companies going in the future. Where do you really see consumerism and sustainability intersecting? I personally think it's going to only go up from here because as a millennial and seeing the generations below us, I'm only seeing more and more people going into the business world who are asking companies, asking them for more accountability and more transparency. And I think that's awesome because people should be asking these companies what they're really about and what your mission statement is and what your goal is towards the planet and its people. And that sense of transparency is the one thing I really hope can get bigger with multinational corporations because it hasn't been that transparent in my opinion. And I think with socially conscious businesses, it's a win-win situation for both brands and consumers. Yeah. And I think the more and more that consumers are becoming aware of these kind of issues, these kind of flakiness, I guess, that companies, you know, oh, we're all natural, but you don't see anything else on their website that leads you to believe that or like anything within their mission statement. And so again, being more conscious when you consume uh, will definitely help to kind of pave the ways for these businesses to really create an impact because as more consumers are becoming aware of, you know, what's in our products, what's in our foods, how they're being sourced, the people that are making these productions within their facilities as well, like wage rights and stuff like that. And all the way going back to the beginning production stages, more and more companies are going to be divulging that information and like Hannah said becoming more transparent because we are asking them like our generation younger generations people that are involved within this movement are asking the right questions and companies are going to either need to respond to that or they're going to lose their customer base because we want to know what's going on behind the closed doors and I can definitely see a movement Um, I mean like we said we're from San Diego which is a pretty progressive area for the sustainability movement which we're very fortunate for but I definitely see huge change coming just even like nationally so we're really excited to be on this kind of forefront wave of the of the movement and can't wait to see how much we impact the planet through our company and through the businesses we work with. 
Gabby, before we start talking, I would love to know your age and where you are calling in from. I am 20 years old and I'm calling in from Miami, Florida. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for joining me. Always love having a Miami girl on the podcast. I would love to hear a little bit about your internship. So tell me a little bit about what you do. Sure. Okay. So first of all, thank you for having me. My internship, I interned for a nonprofit called the CLEO Institute. So so the CLEO Institute, CLEO stands for Climate Leadership Engagement Opportunities. It's a nonprofit uh, based here in Miami, Florida, that drives climate action through our community education and engagement. So we educate people of all backgrounds, ages, industries about climate change, the science, the impact it brings, the solutions we have particularly focus on frontline communities because they will be disproportionately affected. So basically at Clio, our mission is that if we educate people, we also empower people to change parts of their lives, to help climate change, but also to demand for action from their elected officials here in Miami. My internship is specifically to help with a new program that Clio is launching. So before I explain that program, as an intern, I work part-time with them. I'm a college student. And it's been a really incredible experience to learn about how a nonprofit works and how community engagement works. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about the internship. So like you mentioned, you are a college student. And what were your majors? So I'm currently double majoring in environmental science and in sustainability. I'm also doing a minor in communication. Before college, I went to actually a magnet high school here in Miami that focuses on environmental science. So that definitely gave me a stronger background for my college education going into the environmental sciences. Okay, awesome. So it sounds like you have a really great educational foundation for being able to communicate these climate issues on that more grassroots level that you're interning at. Yes, for sure. I'm really blessed that I went to a high school that was literally specifically for environmental issues. So then going to my university, I went in knowing a lot about the issues and knowing that what I wanted my career to focus on was communicating the issues to the community. So definitely. Awesome. And tell me a little bit about this new program that you're working on. I guess to start off, Miami is known as ground zero for climate change. We are literally projected to flood from sea level rise, like a lot of people around the country know. And what's super worrying about that is that climate change, sea level rise, those topics aren't taught well enough in our schools here. A lot of the times our teachers don't have the resources to teach climate change, don't even have a full understanding of climate change. So this is a really prevalent problem in Miami-Dade County. And that is why Clio created this new program I'm working with that's called Climate Resilient Schools. So this program is basically designed to help close that gap between the student knowledge of climate change and working for climate change in Miami and getting stuff done. So my internship is to help develop and launch this program. Our goal for this program is to increase climate literacy in students of Miami-Dade County, especially, like I said before, in the underserved areas of Miami, because they will be disproportionately affected by things like sea level rise and saltwater intrusion. Awesome. Wow, that sounds really interesting and also very daunting. It sounds like a really big task to encourage literacy around an issue that's like not even talked about that often. Definitely. <laughs> in, in the office, we call this like the monster program because this is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest program that Clio is going to take on. What's promising about it is that the setup we have for this program is going to be very successful. 
so how are we doing this? Like you said, it's super daunting. How are we gonna increase climate literacy among thousands of students in Miami? Well, basically what we're doing is we're partnering with schools uh, to a high school program called CLIP. CLIP stands for Climate Leadership Information Program. It's kind of like this other program we have in Miami called Health Information Project. Um, it's kind of modeled after that, if you know what that is. But basically with CLIO, what we're doing is that we're going into schools and we're giving them climate lectures in their classrooms. And then in those classrooms, if the teacher wants to sponsor the program in their school, they can become a teacher sponsor. And then basically we create like this club where we can certify students as climate speakers, which basically means teaching them how to talk about climate change and talk about the science and the impact. And then once those students are climate speakers, they can teach their peers about climate change. So we foster this ongoing peer-to-peer -peer program in high schools later this academic year. It's about starting seeds for climate communications in high school and then letting those students who we initially partnered with to carry it on and start this program within their high school. So it's very exciting um, and personally it's very exciting for something for me to be a part of because I think that's going to be everything. To um, build resilience in Miami, we have to have a very strong knowledge base, especially in our younger generations. I love that model so much because it really does encourage this grassroots like community effort around climate issues. I think that's probably one of my like personal issues with the way that a lot of climate change information is presented. If it's like in a really stark kind of formal like scientist setting, it doesn't really feel like it relates to people. But if it's like your peer, your science teacher, someone in your immediate circle that you already relate to and respect in some capacity telling you about climate change, I feel like that is so much more impactful than hearing it from a seminar or something like that. 100%, I agree. I mean, personally, when it comes to climate change for me, I had learned about it in my classes in high school from the beginning since I was like 14. But surprisingly, looking back on it, I actually never clicked with it. And I think it's for the same reason you said, because it was presented to me as too scientific, too political, too scary. Let's just talk about it, but let's not really you know, focus on it. That's how I had always thought of climate change. But then through getting involved with other organizations, and especially with Clio, honestly, the way that climate change is presented is opportunity, right? And not like a catastrophe. And if we can get people to understand that climate change is actually pretty simple to understand, then we can get people to talk about it. And that's really, that's really the goal of Clio in general through all the various programs that they handle. Wow. 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 I love that so much. So thank you for kind of breaking down the idea of presenting climate change as an opportunity as opposed to a challenge. I think that's a really positive way to spin the conversation and definitely necessary if we're going to get anything done. And before we wrap up, I would love to kind of hear any thoughts you have on getting a similar internship. If someone is a college student or a recent grad and they are living in another city, not necessarily Miami with the Clio Institute, how can they go about looking for an internship? How did you find yours? How I found my internship at Clio was <laughs> basically stalking Clio. <laughs> so I had loved Clio for a few years. Definitely at, before I started my undergraduate degree, I followed them. I always looked at their social media. Once in a while, messaged them like, hey, are you guys taking interns? And I never really got a response. But then last April, Clio had this big symposium where they basically open to the public. You pay. It's a big symposium about climate change in general. Huge education event. Probably the biggest thing they put on. And I went to it as a volunteer. 
student volunteer. And then during one of the panels, leader of the Clio Institute, Ms. Caroline Lewis was actually, she sat down next to me. And I thought in my head, okay, this is my chance to speak to somebody and hopefully get involved with this organization. So at one point during the symposium, she had a, she was not talking to anybody. I got up and I said, hi, do you have a minute to speak? This is who I am, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of the times in school, we'll learn about like our elevator pitch. That is so real. <laughs> the elevator really what got me an internship because I had spoke to Miss Lewis and I, you know, I told her about myself and she was like, awesome. We need somebody like you. I have a program about schools starting up this year. I would love if you could work with us. So that definitely sounds, when I say it out loud, especially like a fantasy kind of, wow, you got really lucky. But I think it's true. You know, you got to put yourself out there. You have to reach out to the people who you want to work with. And that's what I did for Cleo. When it comes to other internships that I've had before, other organizations I've been involved with, they were usually just me applying to them or me finding it online and things like that. But I definitely found them by doing research or they were presented to me through my classes. I really like that story of how you got involved with Clio because it really goes to show that right place, right time is really important, but it's also about knowing your credentials and going after what you want. And I think that's just like a really good inspiring story of like getting things done for yourself, like making things happen. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking of when I went there. And when I saw the people who work there, I thought that this is a great environment. I want to work in climate. How can I land a position here? I'm extremely grateful for it. I'm very grateful I went to that symposium because now I'm learning about how a nonprofit works, ways to do outreach, what developing a program is like, and, and how we increase community engagement for a purpose. So as an undergraduate, that's so helpful because, you know, now I'm thinking about what I want, what career I want to steer into. And it's really, really important for people our age to experiment with different organizations and public, private sector, whatever it is. I guess when it comes to working in the environmental field, the way that I've actually had for my internship at Clio, and this is definitely more on a deeper level rather than on the level of looking for an internship and professional development. But the biggest takeaway I've had is that working with people who are working for the environment is so good for us mentally, if that makes sense. So like eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, these are super really things. And as somebody that's been studying the environment, you have to somehow stay motivated and passionate and it can be difficult some days. But I've realized that the best way to stay motivated and optimistic about whatever you're working in is to definitely surround yourself by a team of people who are, who are working for the planet every day also. I just think that's such an important point to be made because it's the biggest, I guess, personal development realization I've had lately. And I just want to put that out there for anybody who wants to pursue a career in the environment that it doesn't have to be like this depressing thing there are just working for this every day. Allison, before we get started, tell me your age and where you're calling in from. I am 27 years old and I'm calling today from Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you so, so much for calling me. And I would love to just hear a little bit about the job that you had, um, light bulbs. I would love to hear about your sustainability experience there. Yeah, of course. So I have a background in environmental science. And when I graduated, I didn't really know how exactly I would use that. I ended up kind of coming across an internship that wasn't going to play out long term after two or three months because of 
just things going on with the company. It was for sale and this, that, and the other. But I did have a really great boss there that kind of encouraged me to look in the direction of some other specific companies and gave me some really valuable resources for my job search. And it did take a few months from there, but I ended up finding a job with, at the time, Akova. It's a utility consulting company. And through them, I worked on a program for Duke Energy, which is a very large utility that was selling light bulbs. And the whole premise behind that was that we were trying to incentivize customers to buy a more energy efficient bulb. And of course, the utility, they have incentives to provide programs like that. And then we were kind of the third party that was hired to oversee all of that. That's a really interesting space to be in, I feel like, because you're not necessarily working for the utility company. You're not necessarily working for the light bulb manufacturer. You're just trying to get them in the hands of consumers, correct? Yes, exactly. So in my first role, I was out in the field and it was a lot of customer education. I mean, there's a lot to do with dealing with stores as well. This was a residential-based program. It wasn't industrial or anything. So I was spending a lot of my time my time in Lowe's, Home Depot, Habitat stores, um, different retailers, and doing some education to the store employees about why this program is here, why they're seeing this signage and marketing and what to expect from it. But we also really wanted to reach customers and educate them. So we did a lot of like educational events within the stores, and then also a lot of community outreach and being kind of the face of the utility at these different community events, um, whether it be a Earth Day fair or even going to like retirement homes and speaking with the residents there about why it might be beneficial for them to change their light bulbs, going to elementary schools and even speaking with the Spanish speaking community, trying to provide them with the right resources to provide that education around energy efficiency. Very, very cool. So tell me a little bit about kind of how your educational background played into this because you said you had an internship that didn't really pan out long term and you weren't really sure what you were wanting to do when you got out of college and what was that experience like as like an entry level person in this consulting role? I mean of course it's a little bit frustrating when one thing doesn't doesn't pan out but I think it was a blessing in disguise at the time I really thought that you know I wanted to be this big sustainability expert within a company and I would still like to do that at some point, but it was a good transition for me to really realize what the general public is thinking in terms of sustainability, because having done environmental science, that's four years of these very specific targeted courses on climate and energy. And yeah, I'm sure you all can imagine what my degree was just very, very targeted around the climate. But most people don't get any of that education at all. And so for me, it was actually really fun talking to, to people about these, these things that I'm really passionate about and how one little switch could actually make quite a big difference for the long term. But of course, you do have to also keep in mind that most of these people, yes, they care about the climate, but at the end of the day, they do tend to lean more towards the argument of how it can save them money in the long run. But there are just multiple things to consider with in terms of these conversations with people and kind of that systems thinking that you're taught throughout your education. Yeah, I think that's actually a great point to mention because I have that similar realization pretty often, the idea that like, yes, 
it's great to like educate people and encourage them to do good things for the environment, like out of the goodness of their heart. But at the end of the day, it matters when it hits someone's wallet. So being able to kind of work in that like more sales role almost, not even necessarily just education, but the idea that you're really like selling them this idea of sustainability and energy efficiency is a really interesting like set of lessons essentially. Yeah. And I think that's going to benefit me greatly in the long term as I pursue other careers as well, because I have a little bit more of that sales and also a little bit of marketing and being that middleman between the utility and also the company that I work for. And then another role, I did a lot of communication with the actual manufacturers of light bulbs as well. So I'm glad that it worked out the way that it did because I now am able to see these problems from multiple viewpoints. And I don't think I would have been able to do that before had I just gone into a very targeted sustainability role. That's a really, really cool insight on your own career field and lessons that you learned from a particular job. Allison, do you have any like final thoughts that you want to leave with the audience? Keep learning. Definitely don't rule out anything just because it's not what you want to do. It's going to take time to get there and explore different sides of yourself, explore different options, especially you might not want to work for like a shell oil company or something because it goes against your beliefs. But oftentimes that's where you can make the biggest impact. So don't rule out companies like that just because they might not align exactly with your core values. I hope you guys loved, loved, loved that episode. I know I really, really enjoyed it. So I'm going to go ahead and just recap. We spoke with Sophia, a researcher at the NASA Develop. We spoke with Ariel, a sustainability manager, Hannah and Lacey of Lumaterra, a socially conscious PR firm, Gabby, working with the Clio Institute nonprofit on climate literacy, and finally, Allison, a consultant for a utility company's efficiency projects. I thought this was a lot of fun. It gave me a lot of perspective and a lot of inspiration with where I want to go in my career field and how I can really be seeing my skills applied to different areas where I wouldn't have necessarily seen them before. If you're interested in getting involved and being on the next call-in episode, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast, and then also on the newsletter, you can sign up for that at totallyecochic.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so that you can stay up to date. And if there is a topic coming up that you want to speak on, I would love to have you. I'd love to talk to you. It's always just so much fun to connect and really get to know you. So with that, leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you are so inclined, if you enjoyed this episode. I always really appreciate that. And I will talk to you really, really soon. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.